Good morning and welcome. Beautiful Lord's Day morning and a, a wonderful opportunity that we have to worship the Lord. Uh, just a couple of announcements. In your announcement bulletin, you'll see uh, a number of things going on this week. Uh, I'd encourage you to uh, take a close look at that later on. Um, but right up front, note that there is a VBS meeting immediately following this morning's service. If you have any thought that you might be interested in serving at VBS, we do have um, some roles that need to be filled. Uh, so please just stick around for a few minutes um, and, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about that. Um, in addition, grades 11 and 12, your catechism will be um, adult Sunday school uh, for the rest of the season, which is today and, and next week. Um, as that class has completed its lessons. And then finally, um, office hours. Normally I'm in the office on Monday from 9 to 3 at least. Um, it's only, I'm only going to be here in the afternoon um, due to a, uh, a family obligation. I need to work from home Monday morning. So if you need me, give me a yell. The Lord draws us together gives us the glorious calling to worship, that we might do that well. Let's seek Him together in a moment of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being called into your presence. Work in our hearts and our minds this day that all that we do and all that we say and even what we think might be pleasing in your sight. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. The Lord calls us to worship with these words from Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all His ways, and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from Christ Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 145A in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. 145A, we'll sing stanza 1, 7, and 8. 
Having gathered his people together, God speaks to us the words of his law. And this law reminds us that we're not okay. That the things that come natural to us are rebellion and sin. And that we have to answer to God for that. And therefore, we need to turn away from that. So God speaks to his people and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, nor your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or Anything that is your neighbor's. As I said, this law humbles us. It reminds us that we far too often have given in to the impulses of the flesh rather than following after the holiness of the Lord. And we need to confess that. As long as we act as though we can do it on our own, We won't, we can't. But God promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins because of Jesus Christ. So let's do that by by confessing Psalm 130. We find it in our blue Psalter hymnal, number 273, from out the depths I cry, 273.
Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 17, reminds us that there are two ways in which one can live. The one way is by turning to the Lord, confessing our sin, relying entirely on Christ to forgive us, to reconcile us, to guide us, to empower us, to lead us forward. And then there's everything else. All of the different worldviews, all of the different religions that we encounter in our culture and throughout the world, they all come down to this, that you're not relying on the true God, that you're not relying on the one who revealed himself in Scripture and came to live among us as a man to restore us in a way that we never could. Two ways. Whether that one way is in the form of the various false religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, etc., 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 or simple humanism, relying in me, relying in man, as the measure of all things and the strength that I need. It all comes down to not relying on the true God. And Jeremiah reminds us, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. He's talking about these shriveled, ugly, fruitless trees that you see in the wilderness of the Middle East. They're barely hanging on, clinging to a rock. They produce no fruit. They don't even produce shade. They just exist. And as long as we live apart from God, that's us. We just exist. There's no joy in that. There's no hope in that. There's no future in that. But, he says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The one who trusts in the Lord is like those trees you saw on the way to to church this morning. Their buds coming out, promising new life, promising shade for those who would rest under its branches, giving the hope of fruit to come, from which the birds and the animals and even man will eat and be nourished and refreshed. When we trust in the Lord, He causes us to flourish so that even when the world around us is a drought, even when the world around us is bitter and hard, we flourish. Because we're not depending on us or what comes from us, we're depending on Him and He never fails, never lets us down. That's our hope. And it's in that hope, it's in that confidence that we come to the Lord in prayer, confessing that our strength is from Him. As we do so, just a couple of updates. Um, please keep Keith Osterhaven in your prayers. He's, um, he was not able to be with us this morning. He's suffering from a good bit of dizziness. 
Um, so pray for Keith. Um, also, um, Jamie Elzinga, she has surgery planned for Tuesday to, um, to replace her pacemaker. So uh, please keep Jamie in your prayers. Dan Van Ens began a new course of um, treatment on Tuesday. Um, he just got kind of started on it. They got, gave him one dose on Tuesday. Uh, starting this Tuesday, he anticipates it's going to be even more rigorous. Um, and they have him in every day to monitor his uh, body's processing of it. So please, uh, please keep Dan uh, in your prayers. And then we sent out a prayer concern earlier in the week for, um, or last week, for Barrett Gritters, uh, John Timmerman's grandson. Um, he underwent a heart catheterization. They use a balloon to open up um, his aorta. And um, by God's mercy, he was able to return home on Saturday. The, the procedure was on Friday. He was able to return home on Saturday. That's, that's the Lord. That's, that's God hearing and answering the prayers of his people. So let's seek his help now. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You know our inclinations, how slow we are to admit our need, how quick we are to trust in ourselves and to think that we know best and that that what we desire must be for the best. But Lord, the longer we walk with you, the more we've come to distrust our desires and our inclinations and our insights because we see how how prone we are to rebellion and sin and folly we pray father that you would continue to reveal to us your trustworthiness and your wisdom that we might not rest in us but always and only in you. Father, we thank you for the abundant answers to prayer that we have experienced. We think of Barrett and how many health issues he had at his birth, and yet he's been flourishing. And then going in Friday for this procedure, but yet to be home by Saturday evening. Lord, that's your work, and none other. We confess that you are the one who who provides healing. You are the one who provides help. You are the one who brings reconciliation to those who are at odds. You alone are able to make us fruitful and to give us life and to provide the comfort and the strength that we need. Father, we thank you for that. And we pray that day by day you would so work in our hearts and in our lives that we, would be, that we would grow in confidence day by day in your faithfulness and your goodness. Father, we see in our pews so many children, so many young people. Pray that you would open their eyes and soften their hearts, that they might see that That when we come before you in prayer, it's not simply a matter of form. It's not just a tradition that we really believe you will help us. And that 
our belief is not blind. Because time and again, you comfort those who grieve, you heal those who are sick, you lift up those who are brought low. Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over those who are brought low, those who are in need. We think of Jamie as she prepares to undergo surgery. We pray that you would allow her to face that with confidence in you, that you would work through the doctor and his team to allow that procedure to go well. And we pray that you would continue to sustain her and David and Cooper as, they, as she goes through her chemotherapy and all of the other challenges that they have faced recently. That they and we together might confess that you have sustained and strengthened. Likewise for Dan and Kathy. As Dan is undergoing this new mix of chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Lord, we pray that you would allow it to not be overly harsh on his body. And that you would use it to restrain the cancer, if it be your will. But above all, we pray that you would use this time of physical weakness to strengthen Dan's and Kathy's faith, their confidence in you, their assurance of your perfect care. Lord, we pray for our other members who are dealing with cancer, that you would provide healing and strength and hope day by day. We pray for Keith as he's suffering from dizziness this morning. We pray that you would provide relief and strengthen him. And Lord, we ask for your, your care on so many others. For those who are grieving, we pray that you would give them relief and comfort for those who are pregnant we pray that you would bless the child within to keep them safe we pray for those who are preparing for marriage that their preparations might be effective and good and and might draw them closer to you we pray for those who are distant from home uh, that they might not be distant from you, but that your presence would be evident in their life, that you would surround them with those who are, uh, are yours and would be instruments to uh, build up and strengthen your, your people, even when they are away from the body. Father, as we look around us, in this world, in this culture. We see so many who walk contrary to you. We see so many who have adopted lies and have rejected the truth that confronts them at every step. The truth that you built into the creation, that you exist, that you are God, that you deserve to be worshipped, that you alone provide help and strength and life. And yet they insist on standing on their own two feet, relying on their insights, resting in their, in their strength, which is weakness. 
We see the fruits of it throughout our culture. As the educational system extols man as supreme, relies on the insights of men, even as it denies truth and objective reality. We see it in the extolling as a virtue of sins that you have called abominations. In the murder, the wanton killing of infants without restraint, even in the womb. The exalting in our midst of men and women as leaders who have no moral compass. We look at these things and at so many others and we grieve, Father. But we know that you alone can fix it just as you alone can save us from our sin so you alone can turn the course of this culture, of this nation, of this people. And so we pray that you would send your spirit forth with great power to open the hearts of many to see their need. We pray that you would work in the hearts of our leaders in particular, our president and his cabinet, our governor and her offices, our legislators, both state and federal, our judges. We pray that you would cause them to bow the knee before you, acknowledging that you are the true King of kings and that to your Son has been given all authority in heaven and on earth that they might lead as instruments in his hand and that they might use the authority given them to provide peace by which your church might grow, your kingdom might expand, your people might be nurtured and the elect might be gathered in. Where they refuse to bow before you, we pray that you would remove them And replace them with those who recognize themselves as instruments in your hand. And Lord, we pray that you would use your church. Cause us to repent of our silence and our apathy. Cause us to grieve the attitude that we have too often adopted. That what happens out there isn't our concern. What happens to our neighbors doesn't bother us. It should. Father, we pray that you would use us to bring the hope of the gospel to those around us. That you would cause us to show love and concern to those whom you have set in our path. And that you would make us, Lord, to be lights shining out in the darkness of this culture, revealing that there is a better way, the way of following your Son, the way of living according to your law, the way of serving you, the true and living God, who causes us to flourish and bear fruit. And now, Lord, as we can... Come to your word. Pray that you would use that word to strengthen us. Causing us to know where our hope and our help and our life are to be found. 
that we might tell others and that we might live in the light of that reality. Father, we pray this now. Along with the many other cares and concerns and requests that that rest in our hearts that you know so well. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we prepare to look together to the end of Exodus 2, and this is a a passage that um, really, as we'll see, marks a turning point in the life of God's people in, uh, in their slavery. And it really, their response to their slavery is really echoed in Psalm 13, which is a psalm that starts out with kind of a hopeless note, acknowledging the the brokenness and the affliction in which the psalmist lives. But, But as we sing it, notice how it concludes with confidence in the Lord, with with confidence that he hears, that he answers, that he will deliver. So we're going to sing Psalm 13 from our Trinity Psalter hymnal. We'll sing all the stanzas. Our text this morning comprises the last three verses of Exodus 2, 
But I'd like to start reading with you from uh, verse 11. Just, uh, just to remind you of where we are there. Um, the last text we looked at here in Exodus 2 was Moses' birth. At a time when the boys born to Israel were to be killed. Were to be cast into the river. And so his parents cast him in the river, but in a tiny ark, a basket made to float among the reeds and rushes of the riverbank. And there he was found by Pharaoh's own daughter, who resolved to keep him. After allowing him to be raised by his parents for a few years, then she raised him up In the palace. Well, we read in verse 11 one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Notice that, by the way, twice we read there, his people. Though he was raised in Pharaoh's palace, though he was raised as a prince of Egypt, he recognized who his people were. He recognized that he was one of the Israelites. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why did you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, "'How is it that you have come home so soon today?' They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Amen. Beloved people of God in Christ, there's an old saying that It's darkest just before the dawn. As a description of nature, that's not exactly accurate, is it? In point of fact, as the dawn draws near, the sky begins to get progressively lighter. It's not darkest just before the dawn. But in the experience of human life, it's very much often the case. So often it seems that the greatest joy comes only after the deepest sorrow, and that celebration is experienced only after we endure defeat. And there's a reason for that. 
God uses the things that we experience in life to teach us the spiritual lessons that, that we desperately need. And so it is with the darkness that we endure in life. Because every life does endure darkness. The darkness of discontentment, having to slog through things that you don't want to endure. The darkness of loss, whether the loss of a friend or of a loved one or of a job. The darkness of illness, enduring the, the pain and the suffering that comes with, with a body that's not working the way it should. Or the darkness of conflict that fills life with arguments and strife. None of that darkness is pleasant. We wouldn't choose to experience any of it, and yet God ordains that darkness ultimately to bless us. Because it's only when we've seen the darkness, whether the darkness of our sin, or the darkness of someone else's sin, or the darkness of a broken world, it's only when we've seen that darkness that we can truly appreciate the light of God's help, and His deliverance, and His hope. Now God wants our worship for the deliverance that he sends. But we won't worship him if we don't recognize the glory and the goodness of his deliverance. And so we have to understand how deep, how true, how real is our need. And that's the purpose of that darkness that we experience. Now in the passage we just read, particularly in the text that we consider this morning, verses 23 to 25, we find a turning point in this book. Up until this point, we've just kind of gotten the prologue. Here's where the people of Israel are. Here's their situation. From this point, we're going to see God delivering His people out of their slavery. We're going to see God exercising and demonstrating his sovereignty, not just over his people, but over all the world. And we're going to see him begin molding his people, shaping them into a priestly people. A people that worship, a people that delight in the Lord. But not yet. We can't see his deliverance. We can't see his sovereignty. We can't see all that he's doing with Israel until first they understand the depth of their need. Until first they understand the reality of their plight. And until they do, God will withhold his deliverance. He will withhold his help because otherwise they can't really appreciate it. And that's a lesson for us. Because Israel, while this is an entirely historical account, Israel is an image of us. We don't live under physical slavery, to be sure, but, but we're born into slavery to sin and Satan and death. We're born oppressed in a world that is filled with rebellion against God and that seeks to co-opt us into that rebellion. And God's deliverance of his people out of that darkness, out of that slavery, is just as real and just as significant and just as essential as his deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. 
And so what we see happening to them, what we see them enduring and receiving, that's meant to be a lesson for us, guiding us in the way that we should behave, guiding us in the way that we should pursue the Lord. And what we see in this text is that before they are delivered, they have to recognize and confess the hopelessness of the darkness they have inhabited. Our theme is simple. Yep, that battery wasn't quite good enough. We're going to pause just one sec. You want to just grab me the other microphone? Outstanding. Oh, oh, that's loud. As I said, a confession of need precedes Israel's deliverance. And the first thing we see about that confession is that it arises from Israel's great misery. Verse 23 says, During those many days. What many days? See, that's looking back on everything we've seen so far. During those days, when the king of Egypt was insistent that he was going to humble and defang this enemy within their midst by killing their little boys. Those days when the people were just regarded as refuse in the sight of the nation where they dwelt, those days when when Moses was born, when he was being raised up, but when there was strife in the land, strife that oppressed Israel, strife that, that broke them. This was descriptive, really, of the, the last but the hardest years of Israel's life in Egypt. Now understand, kids... You know, sometimes we read about Moses and we think that all this happened in in just a very brief time. But what we've read about Moses so far, up to this point, that's about 80 years. He lived in his parents' home for a while. We're not sure exactly how long. Probably, Probably maybe three, four years. And then he was raised up in the palace. When he killed that Egyptian who was beating an Israelite, and then he fled from Egypt to Midian. He was 40 years old, we're told elsewhere. And he stayed in Midian. He married Zipporah. He had two sons. He shepherded sheep for another 40 years. So that by the time 
what happens in verses three and or chapters three and four, which we're going to see next time when he's called by God to return, when he's called by God to go and begin delivering Israel. He's eighty years old, and it's during those many days. Now, understand those many days were a time of crushed hope for Israel. You have that when you're under a difficult leader who's growing old. You have that hope. Someday soon he's going to die and then things will change. And maybe, just maybe, they'll change for the better. Maybe, maybe the new king will be compassionate, understanding, helpful. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. It came to pass. Surely there was no grieving. There were no uh, dark curtains hung in the portion of Egypt where Israel lived. They weren't grieving his death. He was such an oppressor. He was, he was the one who ordered their baby boys to be killed. But they were hoping for change. You know they were. The change didn't happen. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned. And why did they groan? Because nothing changed. They were still oppressed. They were still hated. Their kids were still being killed. And so they groaned. They groaned because they had longed for change and that opportunity for transformation arrived and nothing happened. It's like when you, you've got a, a president who is instituting all kinds of rules that are hurtful to God's people, that are hurtful to the land, that are harmful to the economy. You long for him to get cast out. You come to the election and what happens? They overwhelmingly put him back in. And we groan. Another four years. Well, for them, it wasn't another four years. It was potentially another 40. We don't know how old this new Pharaoh was when he was raised up, but, but they didn't have four-year terms. It was in de- until death do we part. But notice, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned. Literally, the sons of Israel. Earlier in this book, the Egyptians referred to them as the Hebrews. Moses himself writes of them that they were Hebrews. Moses went out, looked on their burdens, and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now that word Hebrew, um, it's just a, an ethnic designation. It's like calling someone Dutch or German or American. But the sons of Israel, that has a different flavor. The sons of Israel is a covenantal name. When you call them the sons of Israel, you're not talking about their ethnicity. You're not talking about their differentness that set them apart from Egypt. You're talking about them as the people of the promise. You're talking about them as the ones whom God had set apart for Himself, whom He had promised to make His people. And said he would be their God. 
the ones to whom he had promised an inheritance in the land of Canaan, the ones whom he had promised when he sent Jacob down to Egypt, that he would restore those people after many years, and he would prosper them, and he would give them that land that he had spoken of. They groan in their misery, but they groan as the people of God, as the recipients of the promise, as the ones who were set apart by God, and as those covenantal people, they cried out for help. Finally. You ever have that? Young people, you ever have that? You got some chore, some challenge that you've got to face? And somebody, maybe it's your teacher, maybe it's mom and dad, maybe it's a friend, says, you want some help with that? No, I got it. You sure you don't want some help with that? No, I got it. I can do it. Okay, well, I'm here if you need my... I got it. And then eventually you realize you don't got it. You got to go back. Say, I do need your help. That was Israel. For 400 years, they existed. At first, prospered in the land of Egypt, raising their flocks and herds, raising their children, growing their families, but then slowly, incrementally, enslaved by the Egyptians, brought low until finally they groaned in their oppression and they cried out for help. You see, that's what God wants of His people, that we cry out for, our, for His help. That's the only way we can be saved, is if we cry out for our help. Young people understand that as long as you're relying even a little bit on yourself, you don't have help, you don't have life, you don't have hope. Because you can't save yourself from your sin, you can't reconcile yourself to God It doesn't matter how many good deeds you do, it's not enough to cover over your sin. It's not enough to reconcile you to God. And that's with the big one. Don't forget all the little ones. You get sick, you can't make yourself well. You look for for work, you can't find yourself that job that you need. You're looking for housing, you can't find the place that's right, the place you can afford, the place that you'll be blessed. Only God can do those things. You find yourself at odds with your friends, with your family. There's strife tearing you apart. You can't fix that. You'll only make it worse. You need the Lord. In the smallest struggles of life and also in the biggest, you need the Lord. And He promises to to hear us, but only if we cry out, only if we seek His help. And that's what they do. God promised. We heard it in our, our uh, call to worship this morning. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. He promised. And so finally they cried out, and what do we hear? Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. confession arising from their great misery, but it's also a confession acknowledged because of God's gracious covenant. That's the other thing we see here. 
when they finally cried out in their groaning, God heard their groaning. He didn't just hear the formal words of their prayer. He heard what lay below it. He heard their groaning. He heard their struggle. He heard their hurt. He heard their hopelessness. He always does. He heard the groaning of his people in Egypt as he would later hear the groaning of his people in exile in Babylon. As he today hears the groaning of his people when they call out in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their hurt. God always hears the groaning of his people. He hears you when you groan in fear because of the diagnosis the doctor has spoken. He hears you when you groan in grief over a loved one lost. He hears you when you groan in sorrow because of the depth of your sin. He always hears his people. And having heard, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. You see, they were a people set apart. Not set apart because they were the biggest people, they weren't. Or because they were the best people, they certainly weren't. They were set apart by God's grace. Freely, inexplicably, he chose Abraham. And he said, you will be mine. And you and your children after you throughout their generations will be mine. I will be your God and they, you, will be my people. And I will make you more numerous than the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. And I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. And all the people of earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. That was God's promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to all of their offspring. God heard their groaning and he remembered they were his people, recipients of his promise. He does the same when we pray. They were marked out as His by the sacrament that they received, the the little boys, when they were eight days old. We receive a different sign of the promise, don't we? With baptism. And ours is better. Because their sacrament of entrance into the covenant, their sacrament was a promissory sacrament. It said, this is what will be done. Blood will be shed. A child will come forth. The promises will be fulfilled. But ours has no blood because the blood has already been shed. Ours is a sacrament of water, of cleansing, of fulfillment. Christ has already come. The sacrifice has been offered. The promise is fulfilled. Reconciliation is yours. He looks on us, he hears our groaning, he remembers. These are the ones for whom Christ died. These are the ones whose whose cleansing Christ's blood has accomplished. These are the ones who are my people. God remembered and God saw the sons of Israel. Having heard their cry, having remembered, he saw. And what did he see? He saw their grief as they longed for freedom. He saw their sorrow as they were crushed by Satan's claws. He saw their longing for deliverance from this oppression in which they existed. God sees everything. He didn't just see 
the big picture of Israel. As we're going to see in the coming chapters, he saw all the little nuances. All of those plagues, all of those punishments that he sent on Egypt, those were tailor-made for Egypt. They addressed the very gods in which they rested, in which they trusted, and, they, and he, he demolished them. He overthrew every single one of them. God saw the nature of the oppression Israel was facing. He saw the nature of the people who were over them. He saw the false hope in which Egypt rested and also the longing that grew in the hearts of his people. God saw all of it. He always does. He sees all of the intricacies of all of our struggles. He doesn't even just know what you know. You know that you're deeply unhappy in your work, maybe. And God sees that. But he also sees why. Why you're unhappy. Whether it's that coworker or that particular task. Or maybe how it doesn't fit your gifts. Or maybe how you've been prepared through that job for something new. And now you have to be dissatisfied so that you can move on to that other thing that he has for you. He sees all of the little details in your life. The ones that you don't even perceive. He sees them. And God knew. Do you recognize the comfort in that? God doesn't look on His people from a distant place. Clinically, academically. It affects Him. To see his chosen ones suffering under the shackles of sin. He looks upon Israel as a father looks upon his children who are suffering, who are struggling, who are longing for deliverance. Thing is, he's no ordinary father. He's able to deliver in a way that no mere earthly father is able. Hearing them call from Egypt, God knew. He knew that they were ready to be delivered. He knew they were ready to trust in Him. He knew He knew that they were weak, that they would falter in their, in their trust. But He also knew that the time was ripe. And He knew what they didn't. He knew that He had sent Moses ahead of them. That for... Forty years, Moses grew up in the palace of Pharaoh, which means that he had the perfect education for being able to intercede on their behalf. He knew the ways of the court. He knew what buttons to push. He knew what people to talk to. And then for 40 more years, he was a shepherd, which means not only did he know how to go into the the glorious halls of Pharaoh's palace. He also knew how to get dirty among creatures that were foolish, that needed to be led for their most basic necessities, that would 
run off in directions that would get them killed or maimed or harmed if you let them. Here was a man who had been prepared not only to be a diplomat, but also to be the leader of a people that didn't know what was good for him. God knew exactly what they needed and when they needed it and how they needed it. God knows us. He doesn't always... listening to the radio on the way here and the announcer said uh, was talking about prayer and he said it's great to see your prayers answered and sometimes you, you he doesn't answer our prayers that's wrong he always answers our prayers maybe not the way we want him to maybe not the way we expected but he always answers because he knows exactly what we need he knows all of the intricacies and he knows where he intends to guide us. God heard. He remembered. He saw his people and he knew. He knows us. He knows the misery of the sin in which you have dwelt and the hopelessness that you've felt in trying to overcome that sin. He knew that you would call out to Him because of your desperation. So He allowed you to feel that desperation. He knows also the hurt that's filling your heart today, the frustration that you might be feeling, the hurt or the anger or the grief or the loneliness or the depression or the anxiety. He knows. And He's the only one who is able perfectly to meet that need, to overcome that obstacle, to deliver from that slavery. But before we're delivered, we must confess our need. Again, not because God is powerless until we call on Him, but because He wants us to know that He did this. May God... Give us the humility to acknowledge we're not enough. We can't fix it. We can't deliver ourselves, but He can. And may He enable us to call out for help from the one who can, the one who knows, the one who cares. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you loved us enough to send your Son to deliver us from the slavery that would have destroyed us. Remind us of that daily so that we might call out to you with confidence in the lesser things of life, the struggles the strife, the sins, the hurts, and calling on you. Teach us to be confident that you hear, that you know, and that you love. And Father, we thank you that you hear this prayer, that you hear all our prayers because of your Son who has given us access into your very presence. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.
in response, let's stand and sing together number 474 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. 474, we'll sing stanza 1 and then 3, 4, and 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
that you do provide precisely what we need. We pray that you would receive now our tithes and our offerings as a confession of our confidence in you and of our gratitude for all that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song this morning is number 64, A Little That the Righteous Hold. Number 64.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.